smell the roses. I spent a lot of time rushing through life. I, I skipped a grade in uh, my first move to Canada. I skipped a grade. I went to a school. It's all about getting you into your career as soon as possible. I'm building this, that, and the other. And it's like, you know, this delayed gratification thing, always thinking about how your life is going to be better in the future once you achieve some amount of success and tying that happiness to an actual concrete goal and outcome. I think that's wrong. Life is happening right now. And while it happens, you got to smell the roses. You just heard from Ian, the founder of Zipcall, who's currently a software engineering intern at Coinbase. A lot of students dream of starting their own company while in college, but Ian actually did it, growing Zipcall from a passion project to thousands of users and an eventual acquisition. Today's episode explores his journey with Zipcall and the lessons he learned along the way. And as a reminder, we are looking for sponsors and partners on the Next Iteration podcast, so please reach out if you know anyone who might be a good fit. Thank you and enjoy the episode. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. I'm excited. Okay, awesome. Ian. <sighs> what's going on man like you're just you're too op uh okay first of all if nobody's or if anybody's not watching the video this episode right now you gotta hop on because this dude is a handsome man i just want to throw that out there but not only that canadian kayaking record holder and four-time canadian national speed skating competitor like what is that about that was i was not expecting that how did that happen so- like <laughs> So I think you give me too much credit here um, because one, one advantage that I have, at least in those sports, is they're fairly obscure. Mm. So like making it <laughs> to high levels and like, so I was, I was on Team Ontario for a little while for, um, for speed skating. So I'd compete in short track, which is like, you know, indoors inside like a hockey arena and long track, which is like a 400 meter kind of like a, uh, like a running track, but not that many people do speed skating, especially in Ontario. So um it might it might sound more impressive than it actually is, but yeah, that, that was I'm a big sure thing for us. Was yeah. was athletics. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, Have you stuck with it since athletics. since getting into college? Or? No, that's that was a big that was a very big turning point for me because I was for most of high school and, and middle school when I first came to Canada, I was just going really hard. I'd be speed skating, I'd be training like you know 15, 20 hours a week for that, um, kind of competing at the highest level that I that I could. You know, we're just really trying to be the best. And in the summers, I would be training kayaking. And I was fortunate that I, I did have, a, I think, a, an amount of success that kind of gave me a signal that like, hmm, maybe I could pursue this and kind of keep pushing it. And just for a little background there, my mom was a very high-level swimmer. She was um, she was like on, on the Olympic team for Team Canada. So she's no stranger to athletic feats and stuff like that. And the big decision for me was like, do I want to take a couple of years off and pursue this full time and really go as hard as I can and put all the effort or I want to go to school or kind of what does that decision look like? And I kind of concluded that I, I didn't see the risk reward profile being worth it. Um, you know, I had lots of friends who had delayed university by three years to try and make it to the Olympics and they didn't make it or they did. Or even if you do make it, it's not a particularly lucrative sport. And I, I don't have the benefit of coming from you know, shit tons of money where I can be like, yeah, I, don't, I don't need to worry about income. Like that's just, it's fine. I can just live off of my trust fund. So I was like, you know what, let's, let, let's dive into school and see what happens. And it was also kind of, I wasn't enjoying competing towards the end of, 
um, my career, career, my speed skating journey and kayaking journey. It was, it felt more of uh, more like a job than a hobby, which was something that looking back, I think that was actually one of my biggest mistakes was I took everything way too seriously and I went way too hard, which has its benefits because you're just optimizing for, I need to be the best. I need to be on point with absolutely everything. I need to be very calculated in my approach, but it ultimately ended up leading to my demise. That's where I just was like, I'd get so unbelievably nervous before races. I'd literally throw up because I'd be like, you know, you, oh, you know yeah. everyone else oh, is going to be on the line. You know the times that they're going to skate. You know exactly what you're going to do. Um, and you have this run book in your head. And I just put so much pressure on myself that it, it didn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And as I got older, once I realized to be like, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Like, you, you got to enjoy the ride as well. That's mm-hmm. when I started to, to chill out a bit. Mm-hmm. I, that's so eerily similar to my story. So I used to play competitive soccer. And I had like a turning point, I think it was like 10th or 11th grade, which was the exact same. It was like, let's take a look at the risk reward profile for this sport. And let's really look at, hey, okay, yeah, sure. Soccer might be a little bit more lucrative than, than skating. But at the same time, like how much of a percentage of soccer players actually make it to that, you know, upper echelon of income uh, versus, you know, how many people get injured the night before their the the game that the scout is going to be at and they miss all their chances and they don't get drafted to a team, you know? So I had like a really eerily similar kind of athletics career, if you want to call it a career, because it ended pretty early. But um, one, one thing that I picked up like later on and I, I had to be like really conscious of like not turning into a side hustle was photography. And so like I, I do photography and I like actually don't post my pictures. I usually do film. So like I just keep the like, prints myself and like I don't show them to anyone because it's something I'm trying to do for the artistry so I'm wondering do you have any hobbies that now that you've had the benefit of kind of hindsight where you you're trying not to turn into a side hustle and like not to go super competitive in it which kind of takes away the artistry and like the enjoyment of it um nothing that I'm like thinking about from like an income context I describe as a side hustle but one mm-hmm. area where I sometimes worry if I'm kind of fixating too much on the actual result and not too much mm-hmm. actual progression is is like the gym um i really right. like lifting weights I, I think once i stopped training for speed skating and kayaking i needed another avenue to you know kind of keep my fitness up and for me that was you know resistance sure. based training on you know lifting weights just i'm a bro like everyone else um <laughs> and yeah i just found myself kind of getting a little bit too obsessed with that recently i'm just kind of trying to remember balance mm-hmm. did you uh start off with those sports young like how young were you when you started getting into that world? So I came to Canada when I was nine or 10. Yeah. And I was nine when I first came here and I moved with my grandmother and she was like, you need to do something. Cause I'm not going to have you sit at home all day. Uh, yeah. And for some, she was like, you got to I was like, okay, I'll do kayaking. Right. Cause my sister knew a friend who was running this canoe club. And I was like, all right, why not? That sounds like fun. And what else are you going to do in the summer? So cool. Um, and I tried, I played soccer when I was younger, uh, like very young, like five, six, I got trampled once. And I was like, not for me. <laughs> I were crying when I was like six years old and it was like scarring experience. So uh, that was kind of off the table for me. <laughs> um, nice. And then winter came around and it was the exact same conversation. And mm-hmm. I actually had a friend who, uh, this was grade six or grade five for me, um, who's a big hockey player. And he ended up breaking like three of his ribs and was like in hospital Ooh. getting that patched up. And I was like, okay hockey's not yeah. for me uh <laughs> and I, 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 I didn't grow up in canada so i wasn't like super it wasn't really on the hockey craze and i was like mm-hmm. all right speed skating looks cool so it's very off the cuff not not too much thought there but i can thank my grandmother for for getting me started and 
yeah, and really pushing me to just go hard in the paint. <laughs> yeah, you know, the reason I asked that is because a lot of parents will throw their kids into, you know, team-based sports when they're younger, just to teach them some sense of um, working within a group, taking yourself or your ego kind of out of the picture for the inservitude of this, you know, greater thing. And you were mentioning how, you know, things got a little too, I guess, competitive towards the tail end there. Like you were devoting so much time to it where, you know, you're sacrificing these parts of yourself for it. Does that translate into the things that you're doing now at all? Or even like uh, when you were starting up with Zipcall, did that, that, uh, that hustle, that grit that you uh, gained through it really form itself into this foundational mindset that you, you carry around with you now? So I'll say one thing that uh, the older I get, I think I get, I, I get little pieces of information here and there that really shape how I um, architect, at least my own lifestyle. I don't want to be careful because I don't want to project this too much onto other people. But one kind of pattern that I see just, just keeps getting beaten into my head is that the binary approach to things is almost always the wrong response. And here's what I mean. You know, doing things that are unsustainable by any means necessary, you have to have the right framework to evaluate that. So if you're studying for an exam, yes, it's okay to do things that are unsustainable for one week, for two weeks, because you know, if you don't show up and you don't perform, you're gonna be in a whole lot more pain if you fail that exam or you don't get where you need to do. So it's mm -hmm. fine to take that extreme approach. But for most other things in life, I think being very slow and sustainable and conservative is actually the right way to approach things. And I'm, I'm yet to find many examples where taking that binary response and taking something to the extreme is really the right response. Like maybe startups, I think, because you kind of do just need to go all in. But even there, like how long can you can you be burning the bridge at both ends? Not very long. I don't know, I'm I'm much. I don't want to say I'm against grind and hustle culture um, because I think a lot of people just kind of glorify work. I'm very much for being calculated and being planned and knowing exactly what it is you want and having a plan to get there, and not just being like I'm going to work 12 hours a day and be the best version of myself. I'm like, well, if that's what you like, fine. But I also like sitting on the couch and and you know and like watching cartoons and I, I think. And, and, and what's great is that there's space for both. You know, you don't, to be very successful and high performing and whatever other accolades you want to put behind someone, you don't have to be crazy extreme going unbelievably hard. In fact, I think the best people often don't because it's really, really hard to do that. And you'll just end up burning out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're cutting out all the fat and they're ensuring that wherever they're devoting their energy is going to be high impact. Otherwise you're spreading yourself through too thin after a certain point, right? You got to be very intentional with it. Now mm -hmm. with what you just mentioned, did you, did you have this understanding going into the founding of Zipcall? Yeah. So I think, I think now is kind of a, a good time to talk a little about how Zipcall got created and what that looked like, because it's such a wild journey. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny looking back at it, but so the pandemic, I was living in Toronto at the time, maybe two, three months into lockdown, I think it was, February, March, something along those lines. Um, I just wanted to call my grandmother and she's eight-year-old woman, God bless her soul. No chance she's going to be able to use Zoom. Zero percent chance. All right, so you got to download the app and you got to double oh, yeah. click to install it and log it. It's like, no, no, dude, not happening. Um, and I was like, nice, is there anything that just works and I can just send a link, you know, like a Google Doc, I can just send a link to someone and there's just so little friction. Mm -hmm. And I was like, let me see if I can build something, right? Just a fun little side project. And I ended up building it about the core MVP took me about five days to really get the peer-to-peer -peer aspect working. 
Um, so the core video technology was about five days and the rest of it took maybe two weeks. I was like landing page, hosting it, multi-room support, all that good stuff. Um, but it was, it was a very intense short period. It was like, I was working like 7am to 2am. Um, but it wasn't because I felt like I had to, it was because I just was so excited about it. Like I started building it and I was like, wow, this is actually working. Like, this is so cool. Um, yeah. and I just would wake up and grab that new project feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I really benefited that zip call was right in size that I never actually had to leave that period where that, that honeymoon phase had, had waned away. So I was in the honeymoon period for the entire build phase, which is really great. Cause I just was, I, I just was in love with what I was doing. And that honestly was probably the most fun I ever had with Zipal was that first two weeks where I was literally going for, you know, 16, 18 hours a day, just sitting there, just coding, just ha ha having a blast just in that flow state. Um, and then from there, I ended up posting it to, to Reddit where it's interesting. I got, I, again, speaking of that binary response, I either got downvoted to hell because everyone was like, what are you doing? Stop self-promoting, like, get out of here. Like, we don't, we don't want to hear you. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, all right. So. Yeah, yeah, so just so so I have to be very careful with my wording. And then I came back and I was like, oh, I'm a 19-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid, I forget what I said, um, who made this video calling app like a call my friends. And it wasn't like a check out this thing I made. It was more more friendly. Uh, and that seemed to do a lot better. Um, okay. and then I ended up making it to the front page of like r slash entrepreneurship and r slash JavaScript. These communities have like, you know, like one or two million readers, so got a good amount of eyeballs. Um, surprisingly, I think people don't understand how. Reddit's really great, I think, for sorting through the garbage. It's and so underrated. Stuff that has actual value. Yeah, yeah it's, it's such a great, like, just having moderators and like upvoting and downvoting and having, you know, sort by new and sorting by things that are like hot, things that are accelerating quickly. For sure. They know what they're doing when it comes to finding, finding the good stuff. Um, I've seen, to noise. Yeah. yeah, I've seen entire careers made off of one post like one random throwaway post somebody makes on reddit you know that's all the traction they needed to get their product uh, uh to the moon you know that's zip call that's literally literally zip call because i was mm -hmm. yeah okay so so going back to the story it took two weeks to kind of build it i was using it with my grandma and my mom and i was like oh this is kind of fun this is cool um i was using my friends I, you know maybe like 10 20 people try it out and someone's like hey you should you should you know share this I was like, all right post it to reddit close the laptop went away came back like a couple hours later and i was like oh my god I'm on like the front page of like a bunch of different subs. And I like, I'm like yeah. refreshing like Google analytics, for, like 4 a.m. that night. And I'm just watching the numbers go up. I'm like, what the hell is Jeez. going on? This is crazy. What's my low balancing going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was like, I was running all this on like the shittiest Heroku that you could even imagine. I had like half a gigabyte of memory. And <laughs> like, I was getting it. Like I got it. Was it was like the free tier from like yes. the hackathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it was like literally, the whatever, it was whatever the cheapest one that I could use my own domain with i think it's seven dollars a month so way less compute than you know an oh, yeah. iphone from a few years ago um and, and yeah and then from there i just started taking off uh um, tens of thousands of users in the first couple of days that was like the big spike and then it just kind of was a slow bleed for the next couple of months mm -hmm. um so that's really how did you scale it in those first couple of days like how did you deal so, with that increased demand yeah so that, that's actually one of the biggest benefits of peer-to-peer. Of -peer. Um, and I think that's why it caught a lot of investors' attention was because, so when I was originally designing it, I was like, okay, the traditional approach where I put everything through a centralized server, you know, think about Zoom, think about Facebook, think about like, you know, like Google Meet, any of that stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I realized how unbelievably expensive it is to pay for that. That's like, oh my yeah. God, my college budget is not going to allow for this if I want to operate at any scale. And the idea of calling someone and being like, oh, that call cost me like 15 cents for that hour, like 70 cents for this hour. And that's like literally what the pricing is. Um, at least if you're using like the consumer grade EC2 instances, mm-hmm. paying for the network on that is not cheap because you need the intersection of a bunch of things. You need low latency, you need mm-hmm. high bandwidth. And you also need to have relatively high compute because you're doing encoding and decoding in real time. And when, mm-hmm. if you want all those three, it's not going to be cheap. Um, and they scale linearly with your demand. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that's not going to work. I'm way too poor for that. It also sounds complicated as hell. Let me see what else I can do. And that's when I discovered WebRTC in the world of peer-to-peer. Um, and that's the idea of you send the video directly between the different peers in the call and you just skip the server in the middle entirely. Mm-hmm. And that was great, not only from a cost and scale perspective, because I really only had to worry about um, scaling up the actual room partitioning and like the static, what's the word, distribution of like static assets. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual core video calling aspect, I didn't have to deal with, which was like so huge because I couldn't have scaled to 10,000 people in a couple of hours if I didn't have that approach. Like that would have taken you know, a long, long time because you wouldn't, you couldn't do that just vertically. You'd have to scale horizontally. That would take weeks, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, let's dive deep into that though. So you you said that's what initially caught the, the eye of the investor. So who's the first investor that that reached out to you or like who was the first like big media outlet or whatever after that Reddit post? I'm like, walk us through that process. Right. So so the Reddit, the Reddit, Reddit was the first stop. Um, and then the second stop from there was someone posted me to product hunt, which I didn't know about for the first like five or six hours, which really bothered me because they used the worst photos ever. They were like 480 uh, and, no. like, <laughs> and like the, the aspect ratio wasn't correct. And it was like stretched to make it fit. And I was like, this looks like so garbage. Um, but someone else posted me and I was like, whatever. So I quickly changed my own photos, like emailed product hunt support. I was like, Hey, like I actually made this. Can I like claim this and have my own photo? So it's actually has a chance of, you know, getting some uploads. I think it was yeah. number three product of the day. So that 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 definitely brought in a lot of people. Sure. But then a surprising uh, other big network that really came into push was GitHub. Since this was all open source, because this wasn't a company. This wasn't supposed to be for profit. This was just something I was making for fun. Uh, and I'm like everyone else. I'm still in the internship grind, you know, out here trying to build my portfolio. Um, so I wouldn't be open source. But it started getting a lot of stars on GitHub. And I think it was day two or day three, I got an email from GitHub and it said, your project is trending on GitHub. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> trending on GitHub, <laughs> like, is, that even, is that even possible? It, yeah. it turns out GitHub has a trending page and it gets a shit ton of viewers. And I was number one project, I think for four or five days or something like that, Nice, which yeah. was just crazy. And that was just that, that feedback loop where Reddit fed into GitHub and GitHub fed back to Reddit and they all you know ended up at Product Hunt and you know, they all tried the product and you get this massive spike you know, they all actually use it. So then you, your SEO, your actual Google page ranking just skyrockets in a couple of days. And one thing that, so a lot of people ask me things like, oh, like growth hack tips, right? Because getting a lot of users is, is, is a pretty flashy thing to say. And that's where a lot of people think like, mm-hmm. the reason why my product isn't successful is because I don't have the users. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I will argue to the death that that is the wrong problem to solve. Like you don't need to solve you know, the number of users you have, you need to solve the product. Um, but the biggest tip I'll give with that is a growth hack is understanding the importance of acceleration. So if you think about 
if you're on some, like, let's say you have a GitHub project, right? And you have 10,000 stars and every day you're gaining 200 stars, whatever, right? That's not that big of an increase, 10,000, 10,200, no one's batting an eye. But when you're some, some small scrappy person like me and, you know, zip call goes from 10 stars to 300 stars in a day to 600 stars the next day, that's a massive day over day increase. And these ranking algorithms, they take notice. Same thing for Reddit, same thing for Google, same thing for product hunt. It's all about acceleration. So mm-hmm. it really is this kind of winner takes all approach where you either kind of make it to the top and you get that feedback loop that keeps you there for a little while, or you, or you just kind of don't. Yeah, no, I, I'm just curious because I know a lot of people spend a lot of time just reading about entrepreneurship and uh, they obsess over that rather than going out and actually, you know, doing the thing. Now, I'm I'm not sure if you did that or not leading up to it, because I'm not sure if entrepreneurship at that point was a particular interest of yours. But I mean, like based on that, this is a bit of a leading question, but based on that, how useful was any studying you did on entrepreneurship versus your actual lived experience there? I, I'm yet to meet many founders who read a textbook and like, this is mm-hmm. how I'm going to start my company. This is how I'm going to do it. And it's going to work perfectly. And it's all going to be hunky-dory. I think the much more common narrative is I had this problem or I found this one area where I thought I could create some value. And I just was like, how can I add value here? And again, knowing how to raise around, knowing how to hire people, knowing how to find product market fit, those are all great skills, but those all pale in comparison to actually creating value for end users. And yeah, I just, you don't see a lot of MBAs starting companies, right? Like why, why is it always some, some 22 year old nerd in his bedroom or her bedroom, um, you know, some computer science major that's out there. It's like, oh, I'm going to like write some stupid code. That's going to like help people make video calls. Okay. Or I'm going to start selling books in my garage. Okay. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I don't, I don't think the academic aspect to entrepreneurship is, it certainly isn't necessary put that way. Um, and I don't think it's sufficient either because there's just such a healthy amount of luck and just flexibility that needs to come along with it. I mean, and, and, and again, I can't sit here and say, oh, look, look where I've made it. And, you know, I'm going to do this exact same run book the next time. It's going to work perfectly. I don't know. I didn't even think Zipcall was going to be a company. I didn't think there was going to be an acquisition. I just made, it was just was a side project that blew up. And I was like, let's run with this and see where we can take it. Um, so it's very spontaneous in nature, I think. And it's very much about taking advantage of opportunities as you see them and having a framework to evaluate things. Yeah, you can't yeah, teach a, someone to be at the right place at the right time. Definitely. Seems like a recurring theme that like framework of evaluating things. So once this started blowing up, how did you evaluate the process of like getting investors on and making it, you know, more of like a company rather than just like a project, just something open source? This was probably the, the most stressful part of the entire process and maybe the least enjoyable. Um, this is when Zipcall was getting the most uh, fame, the most users. Some investors were calling me, and it was it was crazy. There was one week where I took like twenty calls from VCs. They just were like, you know, hey, we want to get to know you. Hey, we're interested in your product. Hey, hey, hey. And it's like, what the hell? I'm some nineteen year old kid, and like that's like working in my pajamas. Like I didn't see this coming. Um, yeah, that that was a lot. That was very stressful. And was it still you at this point? Like just you working on this? The entire, I was the only person who ever worked on Zipcall, uh, which oh, I wow. think is actually, that's one lesson that I, I will say I, I definitely learned was like, 
it's much better with people. Having co-founders is so, so important. I think even, <laughs> especially again, like we're talking about that framework for evaluation, I just would get stuck in my head with decisions and just get in these echo chambers where I'd be like, well, what's mm -hmm. the right decision here? Like, what am I doing? And I would just kind of get paralyzed because I didn't have anyone to have as counsel. Um, like I'd be like talking to my mom about like raising like a round of financing. <laughs> like, I love you mom, but like, you know. <laughs> Not exactly your domain <laughs> expertise. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's like, I don't need to be dumping that on you. Mm -hmm. um, for sure. So it's, if you if you were to do it back, you would have had a co-founder, you think? Absolutely. It would have it would have made things so much better. Yeah. And, and the number one thing that I tried to just, I sat on this for like months was mm -hmm. do I have something? And I would I called a bunch of people. I would call people who like exited their companies for like tens of millions of dollars, people who were like, you know, running startup incubators. I got, I did get really great advice from a lot of very well connected people who, who were domain experts. Um, but the main thing mm -hmm. I tried to figure out was like, is there an actual product here? Like, is this something that's worth pursuing? Mm -hmm. Something that I don't think a lot of people understand is that VCs will want to blow smoke up your ass. They'll call you and say how great you are, how awesome your product is. We want to work with you. You've got the best tech. We love it. You're young. You're hustling. You did this all by yourself. You're scrappy. You're lean. You scaled quickly. Gas you up. Yeah. You're like we, you have a demonstrated history of shipping. Like we backed all these other companies and like look at like. And it's one thing for one person to do that. But when you get five people, 10 people, 15 people all telling you that same narrative, mm -hmm. it gets to your head. And you're like, yeah, you start believing it. Maybe, maybe you're like, shit, maybe I am going to be the next Zoom, right? Um, yeah. and, and I was never like that, obviously. But it's really hard to figure out kind of to separate the truth from a lot of the hype. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're going to raise a bunch of money and take on a bunch of you know, risk from someone because... If you, if you raise $100,000 from a VC, they're not just going to let you continue school and kind of half-ass this. Like, they, they expect you to spend the next couple of years of your life going hard. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not nine to five. It's like all day, every day. It's your reputation. Your whole life is behind this. So I would actually say that there's still, even with these companies writing you checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars, there still is an asymmetric risk towards the founders. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty shocking because you think, you didn't even raise debt, right? Like it's not like mm -hmm. a traditional company where you have to go out and get a loan. They're just writing you a check for, for you know, a bunch of money with, you know, you just have to give up some equity. But time time and your reputation, that's a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like the funding thing is weird because uh, I mean, a lot of budding entrepreneurs, they that's kind of like in their their bullseye, right? That they want to get more funding without, without really understanding what that entails. And I'm just curious, like with those uh, bits of outreach that you did to other people, did you get any advice saying, you know, you don't need the funding? Yeah, yeah. I did. Um, because, and, and I, so I never actually ended up raising any money. I didn't raise any financing because the ultimate conclusion that I came to was, what am I going to do with this? Right? Like, am I going to hire a team of like three, four software engineers and we're going to start building out features and, you know, have a marketing budget and, mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully have, find some plan to profitability maybe um the plan that i had in my head and this is i almost ended up taking uh, 100 grand from this one guy um, that i really liked from new york city and the big plan there was we're going to take zip call and we're going to rebrand it as this white label SaaS solution for enterprises meaning they can have their own version of zip call they can slap their own logo on it and they can use it internally and it'll scale wonderfully it's low latency video calls end to end encrypted very secure all the benefits of peer-to-peer -peer video calling um, and that was the one approach that I thought might have been worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. But some of the ideas that people would pitch me were just moronic. Like I had Harvard MBA, like, like, board, like just ridiculous. Like I had Harvard MBAs 
send me like 20 page Google Drive documents going, hey man, I'm gonna work with you and this is what we're gonna do. And the entire premise for generating cash flow is we're gonna have paid filters. It was like, we're gonna have like an in website experience to like buy filters. I'm like, like what was the last, <laughs> last time you paid for a, like a filter on a video? <laughs> was better question, when was the last time you paid for any software? Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the whole reason why this worked was because it was so easy to use and it was free and just so lightweight. And it just was. Yeah. Imagine before a call, you have to select a filter. There's like a mandatory purchase fine. Like, damn, man. It's like a, I'm not using it's like that. A, freaking, a, a Stripe. Choose your avatar. Before, <laughs> yeah. Honestly, there's a Stripe payment field before you can join the call. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny. You got to yeah, pay to see the other person's video. It's a slippery slope. Bad ideas. Um, mm -hmm. And and that's actually one thing I want to talk about a little bit is I think venture capital is a bit of, I think they're in a big bubble right now. Yeah. Um, and not only just from Zipcall and just seeing how much money was on the table with me, no plan for profitability. Solo founder, never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just some chump, right? I'm just some kid. Um, Maybe I'm selling myself a bit short, but you know, there are lots of people who have actual companies with real business plans that, you know, 10 years ago wouldn't have been able to get any, any phone calls 20 years ago, but now some suddenly it seems like everyone is raising rounds of financing. Um, and I see venture capital as a bit of a Ponzi scheme. All right. So what is Ponzi scheme? You have some system where once the money stops flowing in at an increasing rate, everything goes to zero, you know, so the whole system is, is, is backed by more funds coming in. And what do we see in startups? These companies that have no plans for profitability, um, they know they, they could make a profit even if they wanted to, their expenses are sky high. All they can really do is just grow unsustainably. The Ubers, the WeWorks, yeah. Exactly, and they just seem to keep, those are the biggest success stories, right? Those are the ones right. that everyone looks to to say, oh. And Uber still hasn't turned a profit, yeah. And, and I don't know if they ever will. Um, and you see all these companies where it's like, you see some stupid startup. It's like, oh, they just raised $10 million at an $80 million valuation. What the hell? What's your plan for profitability? Oh, we'll figure that out later. Or we're focused on hyperscale and that's what they'll tell you. Um, but I believe that the reality of it is that once the venture capital dries up, or even if it just stops growing, these companies, they all go to zero because they can't raise new financing rounds mm -hmm. um, because they're all backed on the premise that they can scale to the size of an Amazon or Facebook or a Google and just become money printing machines. Because that's what these big tech companies are. They're monopolies and they just have a license to print money. So now VC, I think, has kind of come in as a response to that, as that fear of missing out. Like, oh my God, I didn't get in on Amazon. If I had 1% of Amazon, I'd have you know, $20 billion in the bank or, or whatever it's worth now. It's just that people are just injecting money and capital into absolutely every idea, which isn't horrible. You know, I think it gives a lot of people, especially from, you know, less fortunate backgrounds, opportunities to start their ideas. And if, if your idea is great and it was going to the moon, adding VC funding is like adding jet fuel. You're gonna get there even faster. Mm -hmm. But if you're gonna crash and burn and you add jet fuel to that, you're gonna crash and burn in a big fiery explosion. So you can take other people down with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, raising, raising capital is, is a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. was, did that play a big part into like why you didn't Want to take the funding like were you scared of buying into that hype were you scared of like falling into that bubble and like you know losing equity and losing decision making power like what where, where did you lie on that continue i was mostly scared about both buying in too much to the hype not even the hype of vc in general but just the hype of my own product because it just it would have been so easy to be to just raise a bunch of money and grind this out for two years you know and, and bring on some people 
and just have it go to zero. And maybe I'm too risk averse. Uh, that's something I look back on is maybe I should have taken the money and who knows, maybe this would have been a hundred times bigger. It could have been, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not convinced. I didn't see sufficient signal for that. I saw mostly just noise and mostly hype. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so, before we, we transition on to um, like Coinbase and decentralization and, and your thoughts on crypto and stuff like that, I last question I want to ask you on this whole thing, walk us through the process of getting acquired because I think that's like something a lot of people don't have insight to and I don't know how much you can talk about it, but um, you know, share with us what you can. Like, how do you actually go from like, okay, you got VCs hitting you up, you got a ton of hype, you're starting to get a lot of users, you're thinking of a plan to, you know, profitability and like a business plan and all that. How does the acquisition process go in your head? Like, how do you actually start that process? And wh at what point do you end up selling? Like, at what point do you look at your baby and you're like, damn, like, you know, I think I'm going to sell this. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It was, I, I got to, I have to be a little sparing with details here because I own a pretty long. Oh, for sure. But, but the process actually looked like in the peak of all, all of these, these VCs reaching out, I had a couple of people email me and say, Hey, like, can I buy this off of you pretty much? And they just emailed me this. I don't even yeah. think I had my email. It's like a cold I email. I don't know how people <laughs> found my email. My email, if you can find my email, like on the internet and tell me where you found it, I will like Venmo you $5 because I, I, I don't want it on the internet. Okay, be right back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, but yeah, and these people just would just reach out. And again, it's not the peak of the hype. So I told a lot of people, no. I was like, no, like, what do you mean? I'm not selling you for this ridiculous amount. Like, don't you understand? Someone just offered me $100,000 for, you know, X percent of my company. I'm going to be the next, you know, this, that, and the other. I didn't have that much hubris, but that was kind of the thought process in the back of my mind. It was like, why would I exit now? I don't, I don't need to do this. Um, then as I refused to accept VC funding and kind of accept the hyperscaling model, I was like, hmm, maybe an exit is realistically my best plan out here because I didn't have a plan for profitability. I didn't think it was going to be because most tech companies aren't, right? Um, so I kind of circled back to the people. I was like, okay, let's see what we can do. And I actually ended up making a LinkedIn post being like, hey, I'm considering selling zip call, like send offers pretty much. Um, and a couple more people reach out from there. But uh, mostly just they sent some documents. They're interested. They had a use for the product. They arranged it for a couple of different things. Um, and I was like, okay. So they sent over documents. You sign them, you review them. You go back and forth a couple of times. The whole process took probably two months. Um, yeah. And there was, I'm like first getting contacted to like selling. Well, the first contact was probably a couple months before that. But once I was like, okay, I think this is what I want to do. I think that was probably about, yeah, um, yeah probably about two months because just the transfer yeah, of yeah. money took a while because they were, they're based in the U S and I'm based in Canada right now. Right, right, right. It's all the bank stuff. And yeah. Did you negotiate that at all? Or you just like, once you were happy with the offer, you took it. Yeah. Once I was happy, I just, I took it in the beginning. It was a lot of negotiation and pushback because it just comes down to what your other offers are. Right. Mm -hmm. No one else is willing to like, if someone offers you $5, but no one else. And like, that's all the market's <laughs> going to pay, you know, good luck trying to get them to budge. So mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's so crazy to think that, that I managed to get that acquired. I don't know how that happened. Honestly, <laughs> that was like, I am probably the least helpful person in this space because so much of this to me just feels like being at the right place at the right time and yeah. honestly mm -hmm. managing hype, right? Like I, I was, if anything, I think I was very good at promoting zip call. Like you look at the landing page, it's all very flashy and very buzzy. Look at the mm -hmm. GitHub repository. It's all. You know, good read me. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, 
I, I think that's one area where I did really well. I'm really happy with is I managed to sell zip call and, and really prop it up. And I think that's worth a lot. Um, mm-hmm. All right. And maybe like one question, just to put a nice little bow on this, uh, this section of our call, if you could time travel back to day one of your startup and have 15 minutes. So just a very short chunk of time with your former self to communicate any of the lessons that you've acquired uh, within this time, what would you tell yourself to save yourself, like all the headache and heartache and hubris, anything in between? Find a co-founder. If, if, if I wanted to end up scaling this to the moon or wherever it is, raising money, find a co-founder, absolutely. Or if you do want to exit, exit sooner when the hype is greater in that first initial bubble, because I could have gotten a lot more if I exited sooner. And don't rip your hair out. Yeah, I've never lost more sleep in my life than when I had a bunch of people throwing money at me. That was very, that was not enjoyable. <laughs> not good. <laughs> okay, so Coinbase, how, okay, this is really interesting because it's a very interesting time in the crypto space right now. And, you know, we are, we know that you were probably under an NDA for a lot of stuff. And we just also want to expressly state here that any views here and mentioned are yours alone, Ian Ramsey's alone, and does not reflect his employer or any other uh, entities at all. So what I'm, I'm just would, a dumb intern. Don't listen to me for investing advice. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> don't if, listen yeah, to don't me take for advice advice from predictions much. for the Coinbase stock. None of that stuff. I am no one. Don't listen to me at all. Exactly. <laughs> Not a now, financial advisor. What puts you on to, uh, I guess, the space, first of all, like, why are you interested in the crypto space and why did you want to find a position within it? Yeah. So I think when I look at a bunch of industries that I think could have an outsized impact in the next 10 years, I think crypto is one of them. Might Maybe not, right? Crypto might not end up becoming you know, the, the new framework for finance that a lot of us think it might. Um, but I think one thing that's pretty certain is that I think social media, that's quite saturated. Like I, if I go and work for Instagram, um, I know what impact that's going to have on the world. So I'm not, like, I just think there's a lot of an upside there. Um, and in terms of like a lot of the benefits that it brings is I think it gives people a choice, right? It gives a new baseline for a lot of economies around the world. Uh, when it comes to just economic freedom, it gives them a new baseline to choose. So you think about somewhere like Venezuela, right? You're seeing like thousands of percent of inflation is rampant. You can't use money to pay for anything. People can't buy and trade goods. They have to change the prices on everything like three times a day. It's horrible. Like their citizens literally can't live. They can't import goods um, and they're stuck. Right, their currency has just gone to zero. There's nothing they can do, and mm-hmm. having, I think, a backup of another financial framework, I think, is very fundamental for a lot of these developing economies because they can have a choice. Right, mm-hmm. like we take for granted having banks where you can put in your money and know that it's going to be there tomorrow. That there's a way that you can send money to someone that money isn't going to be insanely volatile. Like people look at Bitcoin, they're like, "Oh my God! Like, how could you ever use it as a store of value? You know, your net worth goes up and down ten percent in a day." And it's like, you look at a lot of other economies and, you know, you might just be happy to come back a month later and see your money still sitting there in the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so while it might not necessarily be that impactful for a lot of the developed countries in the world where we have financial systems, money can transact relatively easily with low fees and, you know, people understand what fiat currency is and, and how it works and why it's, why our dollars are, are relatively stable. That's not the case for a huge amount of the world. Yeah, and that's and where then, Bitcoin's going to be most exciting, right? And most developed, like you have Venezuela, exactly. uh, you have like 
Africa, right? And Africa's payments industry is like booming now. Like Jack Dorsey is like, you know, was, was planning to move there um, and like do a few months there and like really like look at what to invest in and how Square could be a part of that. That like that space is so cool. I think in North America, we get so caught up in our own little bubbles. We're like, this is tech, like, you know, Silicon Valley, like literally mm-hmm. San Francisco and Palo Alto, like that's the world, right? And that's just not true. Like there's so many different market opportunities and those technologies actually become more interesting as they scale to the world, right? It's, it's you know, it's interesting when like a couple of companies or a couple of states use it, but it's way more interesting when you have a global network of payers and, and participants of the economy, right? So it's all about giving people a choice. It's all about giving people a choice. It's, you might not even have to use it, but just knowing that you don't have to put up with your shitty government's horrible fiscal policy where only the people who own actual tangible assets can afford to stay afloat. You have an alternative. Like that's just so important to me. And I think that's really going to help a lot of people. Um, and that that's kind of one area where I think crypto right now, it has, I'll say missed the mark, but at least in our little bubble, it's just a bunch of, you know, 21 year old little shitheads who are buying these crypto coins. Like, oh, yeah. mom, I'm going to the moon. Like I'm, I'm never going to pay. I'm never going to live with you again. I'm going to go live in a man. I'm going to buy my Tesla and that's yeah. great and all, you know, and maybe some of them will pay out, but that's not really where I'm super interested. And Bitcoin 10 X's or halves, I'm, I, I don't really care. Um, even though I do, I do own, uh, other cryptos. I, I'm more interested in the adoption of it. Mm-hmm. What it means for the political system, financial system, like what it means for how people interact and participate in the economy. And I think those implications are a lot more interesting than, you know, like we, we've heard this story before penny stocks, like, come on, man, you make a hundred thousand dollars. It's cool. But you'll, you'll lose that by the time you're 25 anyways. Like, let's move on. Let's actually see what this technology is about and what it can do, right? So, cool. I'm surprised you weren't, like, more, or I'm, like, maybe you are. The actual projects themselves, though, because rather, I mean, you, you want to be intentional about that as well, because especially in such a speculative market, you want to be able to place a bet on the things that you are, you yourself are, like, educated on and actually support rather than just taking advice from some random TikToker, right? <laughs> yeah yeah sure so why coinbase because you could have worked at there's a ton of different companies within the space and even again like touching on some of these projects you could have supported some of these projects individually too especially considering the uh the background that you have now and the experience you've built up i'm sure anybody would have been excited to have somebody like you on board we'll put you on the coinbase so what's great about coinbase um is they have a lot of trust i think compared to other firms or exchanges because they're back in the US, they have a ton of regulatory um, approvals in the right word, but they're integrated very deeply with regulators. They work closely with them and they operate closest to the standard Silicon Valley tech model um, as compared to a lot of other crypto exchanges. Uh, and frankly, they, they, they were one of the first people to kind of interview me and talk to me. And I was like, okay, Coinbase, sounds like the right move, you know? Yeah. There wasn't like I, I I can't say too much here because if I go too detailed, it's like oh I'm gonna comparing different exchanges and what gives them a competitive advantage. But I think the company culture and what they're building is generally fits the Silicon Valley model, which is one that I like. Especially if, if you're gonna hyperscale, Silicon Valley is the right model to follow. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what have you seen other models like in the crypto space with different exchanges, like that have haven't worked as well as the Silicon Valley model, maybe. I think a lot of other places they will, I just don't think there's that same amount of trust, right? Like a lot of places are overseas. Um, like you see some stuff that's going on at Binance where the CFO is just like resigning yeah. one day and you're like, 
What's Bias going on? Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Bias yeah, is, is, yeah. is, is, is uh, Ontario regulators blocked it. Um, yeah. And the thing is, is that it's not like a traditional bank where, you know, if, like fiat money and paper currency, you can track that. Right? You can figure out where it went. You can get it back. You can sue somebody. But a lot of these exchanges, they're based in a bunch of different countries in a way that minimizes their liability. So if you get exit scammed and all your coins get stolen, whether intentionally from the company or just because the company was unlucky and got hacked or didn't do due diligence and their cybersecurity was subpar, yeah, nothing you can do about it. Um, when it comes to cryptocurrency, code is law. And you know, you don't get to change the code because you went to court and you won some case. Right. Mm -hmm. Unless you figure out a way to crack, you know, cryptography. Good luck getting your coins back. So the trust yeah, your quantum computer. Yeah. <laughs> if you get the quantum, if you, trust me, if you can crack your, if you can crack uh, cryptography and get your coins back, like you have something much bigger than much breaking cryptocurrency. Like, yeah, <laughs> you're gonna break everything. MP complete problems. You're good. <laughs> the nuclear launch codes, like everything, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I sometimes wonder if. If, if quantum will break that and what that would entail. But one thing that I think, even if it will break it eventually, is it'll be very slow, right? The quantum computers coming in, if they are able to somehow manage crack these problems in non-exponential yeah. time. So we'll have yeah. time to adapt and change. I, I, like, I, like, I like to think of it like how nuclear arms were. <laughs> like, sure, like nuclear arms were a 10X event for humanity, but at the same time, like there were a couple, a couple cataclysmic events, but eventually everyone catches up and it's just an arm race again, right? So it's not like one day everyone's going to wake up with a quantum computer and then everything's going to be fucked, right? It's like, okay, there'll be one, it'll be regulated, it'll be controlled by the government or a big entity or a big company, something like that. And then, you know, they'll use it for whatever it is and then people will catch up and eventually we'll get to a point where we're at the same problem again, right? We're just quantum computer versus quantum computer. So that's how I like to think about it. I don't know if you have different thoughts on it, but I like, I hope like, you know, I won't wake up one morning and just like wake up to a zero in my bank account and all that. Like, <laughs> your passwords, <laughs> your, your photos, databases, it's all open. Oh yeah. yeah. That, 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 yeah. Having the nuclear launch codes and being able to crypt, being able to crack, um, cryptography. Yeah. One of those is a lot scarier. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens when Russia gets their first quantum computer. It'll be fun. <laughs> Second Cold uh, War, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. So we're almost at time, and I think it's it's time. Fun. You think it's time? Oh, yeah. I think it's time. I think it's been time. <laughs> All right. So we have a tradition here on the podcast where we ask this our final question of every guest to get a little bit of consistency and to tease out what really is the the core values that you kind of have right so that question is if you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach millions and even billions of people what message would you put on it and why Ooh. that's the reaction we like smell Take smell the roses smell the roses I spent a lot of time rushing through life. I, I skipped a grade in uh, my first movie, Canada. I skipped a grade. I went to a school. It's all about getting into your career as soon as possible. I'm building this, that, and the other. And it's like, you know, this delayed gratification thing, always thinking about how your life is going to be better in the future once you achieve some amount of success and tying that happiness to an actual concrete goal and outcome. I think that's wrong. Um, life is happening right now. And... All that happens, you got to smell the roses. 
No, honestly, it's great that you've come to this realization at such a young age, right? Like you've saved yourself a lot of future you still got regret. Time to smile. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. While we're living life now. And, you know, I, I know a lot of young people these days can really struggle with that, considering the reach, the extent of social media, everybody's flexing on, on socials and, you know, showing their best life. It's, it seems like this endless grind to achieve that, but right, right. you know what, yeah. you got to take it day by day. You don't want to get to that point where days are long and years fly by. You want to make sure that every day is lived to the, its fullest. So I love that. Anyways, Ian, thank you so much for your time, for your little nuggets of wisdom that you dropped on us today. Is there anything you would want to promote or where can people find you? Uh, yeah, so if, if you want to find me, um, it's just my name, ianramsey.com. And if you're looking for a tech intern, <laughs> we're probably there as well. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Awesome. All right. Um, thank you. Thanks again, Ian. Fouad, any final thoughts? No, nah, man. I just want to say thank you so much. Like, I definitely learned a lot from your experiences. And yeah, entrepreneurship is something I've been interested in a lot. And I, I think, especially with the side of Smell the Roses, I feel like I've been going at like 100 miles per hour for the last like four years. And it's just like blinders on, focusing on internships, like jobs, like all that. And I definitely need to stop and smell the roses. I just got home from work, actually. So I need to, I need to just leave work early tomorrow and stop and smell the roses. So thank you for dropping that wisdom on us. And, and yeah, thank you for a super chill combo. If there's any way we can help you out, anything, um, feel free to reach out. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening.